16. D-Schools. Would not the best solution be to make of Eastern Galicia an autonomous province of the reconstructed Poland, guaranteeing to it its local privileges? That leaves for consideration the portion of Poland now forming part of Prussia. There can be no question as to what should be done with the districts of Posen and Thorn. These are the parts of Poland stolen by Prussia, which the Prussians, a century and a quarter after the theft, had not succeeded in Germanizing. North of the Posen district is Western Prussia, whose principal city is Danzig, that too is a Polish district, stolen in 1772. Since then Danzig has been Germanized and there are numerous German officials and employees in the other towns of the region, all the rural districts and a part of the towns, however, have remained Polish in spite of attempts to Germanize them as brutal as those applied to post India. But, if United Poland should include Western Prussia, as she has the right to do there being no rule against what is right Eastern Prussia, including Konigsberg, will be cut off from the rest of Germany. Now, Eastern Prussia, with the exception of the southern part about the Mazurian Lakes, which has remained Polish, has been German from early medieval times. It is the home of the most reactionary junkers of all Prussia, a cradle of Prussian royalty and of the Hohenzollerns. Despite our hatred for these birds of prey, could we wish that the new Poland should absorb these 2.000.000 genuine Germans? If the region of Konigsberg remains Prussian and the Missourian Lakes region is added to Poland, why not leave to Germany the strip of land along the coast, including Danzig, in order that Eastern Prussia may thus be joined to Germany at one end? Another question, there is in Prussian Upper Silesia a district, that of Oppen, rich in iron ore, which was severed in the Middle Ages from Poland, but which has remained mostly Polish and which adjoins Poland, if the majority of Polish residents there demand it, would it not be well to join it once more to Poland, which would become, by this addition, contiguous to the Czechs of Bohemia, to sum up, without laying hands on the German district of Konigsberg, United Poland by absorbing all the territory at present held by Prussia, in which the majority of the inhabitants are Poles, will take from the latter 70.000 square kilometers and 5.700.000 inhabitants. With these, the new Poland would have area code 24000000 inhabitants, including Eastern Galicia. If Russia gave to this Poland in lieu of actual independence the most liberal autonomy and reconstructed a Polish kingdom under the suzerainty of the Tsar of Poland with its diet, language, schools and army would not the present war seem to us a genuine war of liberation and Nicholas I, a sort of Tsar liberator, and if resuscitated Poland, taught by misfortune, compassionate toward the persecuted and proscribed because she herself has been persecuted and proscribed, should try to cure herself of her anti-Semitism which has saddened her best friends in France. Would not you say that she indeed deserved to be resuscitated from among the dead? With the honors of war, by with Williams from the New York Times. April, 1915. It was just at the dawn of a March morning when I got off the train at Gerdeviller, the little, martyr city that hides its desolation as it hid its existence in the foothills of the Vosges. There was a dense fog. That 6 a.m. fog usually covers the valleys of the Murthy and Moselle from the station I could see only a building across the road. A gendarme demanded my credentials. I handed him the laser passer from the quartier general of the first French army, which controls all coming and going, all activity in that region. The gendarme demanded to know the hour when I proposed to leave. I told him. He said it would be necessary to have the permit, vice for departure, at the headquarters of the gendarmerie, 
he want to the hazy outlines of another building just distinguishable through the fog. This was proof that the town contained buildings not just a building. The place was not entirely destroyed, as I had supposed. I went down the main street from the station, the fog enveloping me. I had letters to the town officials, but it was too early in the morning to present them. I would first get my own impressions of the wreck and the ruin, but I could see nothing on either hand as I stumbled along in the mud. So I commented to myself that this was not as bad as some places I had seen. I thought of the substantial station and the buildings across the road and touched by war. I compared Gerbabiller with places where there is not even a station where not one simple house remains as the result of the day when the Germans came. The road was winding and steep, dipping down to the swift little stream that twists a turbulent passage through the town. The day was coming fast but the fog remained white and impenetrable. After a few minutes I began to see dark shapes on either side of the road. Tall, thin, irregular shapes. Some high, some low, but with outlines all softened, combed down by the banks of white vapor. I started across the road to investigate and fell into a pile of jagged masonry on the sidewalk. Through the nearness of the fog I could see tumbled piles of bricks. The shapes still remained specters that seemed to move in the light wind from the valley. An odor that was not of the freshness of the morning assailed me. I climbed across the walk. No wall of buildings barred my path. But I mounted higher on the piles of brick and stones. A heavy black shape was now at my left hand. I looked up and in the shadow there was no fog. I could see a crumbled swaying side wall of a house that was. The odor I noticed was that caused by fire. Sticking from the wall I could see the charred wood joists that once supported the floor of the second story. Higher. The lifting fog permitted me to see the waving boughs of a tree that hung over the house that was. Outlined against a clear sky. At my feet. Sticking out of the pile of bricks and stones, was the twisted iron fragments that was once the frame of a child's bed. I climbed out into the sunshine. I was standing in the midst of a desolation and a silence that was profound. There was nothing there that lived, except a few fire-black trees that stuck up here and there in the shelter of broken walls. Now I understood the meaning of the spectral shapes. They were nothing but the broken walls of the other houses that were. They were all that remained of nine-tenths of Gerbevilla. I wandered along to where the street turned abruptly. There the ground pitched more sharply to the little river. There stood an entire half of the house unscathed by fire. It was one of those unexplainable freaks that often occur in great catastrophes. Even the window glass was intact. Smoke was coming from the chimney. I went to the opposite side and there stood an old woman looking out toward the river, brooding over the ruins stretching below her. You are lucky, I said. You still have your home. She threw out her hands and turned a toothless countenance toward me. I judged her to be well over seventy. It wasn't her home. She explained. Her home was, Lobier's, wandering vaguely in the distance. She had lived there fifty years now it was burned. Her son's house for which he had saved thirty years to be able to call it his own, was also gone, but then her son was dead. So what did it matter? Yes. He was shot on the day the Germans came. He was ill. But they killed him. Oh. Yes, she saw him killed. When the Germans went away she came to this house and built a fire in the stove. It was very cold. And why were the houses burned? No, it was not the result of bombardment. Gerbevilla was not bombarded until after the houses were burned. They were burned by the Germans systematically. They went from house to house with their torches and oil and pitch. They did not explain why they burned the houses. But it was because they were angry. The old woman paused a moment and a faint flicker of a smile showed in the wrinkles about her eyes. 
I asked her to continue her story. You said because they were angry. I prompted. The smile broadened. Oh, yes. They were very angry. She explained. They did not even make the excuse that the villagers fired upon them. They were just angry through and through. And it was all because of those 75 French chasseurs who held the bridge. Someone called to her from the house. She hobbled to the door. Anyone can tell you about the 75 chasseurs. She said, disappearing within. I went on down the road and stood upon the bridge over the swift little river. It was a narrow little bridge only wide enough for one wagon to pass. Two roads from the town converged there. The one over which I had passed and another which formed a letter V at the juncture with the bridge. Across the river only one road led away from the bridge and it ran straight up a hill. When it turned suddenly into the broad national highway to Linville about five miles away. One house remained standing almost at the entrance to the bridge. At the end nearest the town. Its roof was gone. And its walls bore the marks of hundreds of bullets. But it was inhabited by a little old man of fifty. Who came out to talk with me. He was the village carpenter. His house was burned. So he had taken refuge in the little house at the bridge. During the time the Germans were there he had been a prisoner. But they forgot him the morning the French army arrived. Everybody was in such a hurry. He explained. I asked him about the 75 chasseurs at the bridge. Ah, yes. We were then standing on the site of their barricade. He would tell me about it. For he had seen it all from his house halfway up the hill. The chasseurs were first posted across the river on the road to Linville. And when the Germans approached, early in the morning, they fell back to the bridge, which they had barricaded the night before. It was the only way into Gerbeviller. So the chasseurs determined to fight. They had torn up the street and thrown great earthworks across one end of the bridge. Additional barricades were thrown up on the two converging streets, part way up the hill, behind which they had mitrailleuses which could sweep the road at the other end of the bridge. About a half mile to the south a narrow footbridge crossed the river, only wide enough for one man. It was a little rustic affair that ran through the grounds of the Chateau de Gerbeville that faced the river only a few hundred yards below the main bridge. It was a very ancient chateau built in the 12th century and restored in the 17th century. It was a royal chateau of the Bourbons, and it once lived the great François de Montmorency, Duke de Luxembourg and Marshal of France. Now it belonged to the Marquise de Lamberty, a cousin of the King of Spain. I interrupted, for I wanted to hear about the chasseurs. I gave the little old man a cigarette. He seized it eagerly so eagerly that I also handed him a cigar. He just sort of fondled that cigar for a moment and then placed it in an inside pocket. It was a very cheap and very bad French cigar, for I was in a part of the country that has never heard of Havana's, but to the little old man it was something precious. I will keep it for Sunday, he said. I then got him back to the 75 chasseurs. It was just 8 o'clock in the morning a beautiful sunshiny morning when the German column appeared around the bend in the road which we could see across the bridge, and which joined the highway from Linville. There were 12,000 in that first column. 150,000 more came later. A band was playing, Deutschland Weber Ols, and the men were singing. The closely packed front ranks of infantry broke into the goose step as they came in sight of the town. It was a wonderful sight, the sun glistened on their helmets, they marched as though on parade right down almost to the opposite end of the bridge. Then came the command to halt. For a moment there was a complete silence. The Germans, only a couple of hundred yards from the barricade, seemed slowly to consider the situation. The captain of the chasseurs, 
from a shelter behind the very little house that is still standing and where his men up the two roads could see him softly waved his hand. Crack 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 crack. The bullets from the mitrailleuses whistled across the bridge into the front ranks of the Deutschland Weber Alls singers, while the men behind the bridge barricade began a deadly rifle fire. Have you ever heard a mitrailleuse? It is just like a telegraph instrument, with its insistent clickety-click-click-click, only it is a hundred times as loud. Indeed I have been told by French officers that it has sometimes been used as a telegraph instrument, so accurately can its operator reel out its hundred and sixty shots a minute. On that morning at the Gerbeviller barricade, however, it went faster than the telegraph. These men on the converging roads just shifted their range slightly and poured bullets into the next ranks of infantry and so on back along the line, until Germans were dropping by the dozen at the sides of the little straight road. Then the column broke ranks wildly and fled back into the shelter of the road from Linville. A half hour later a detachment of cavalry suddenly rounded the corner and charged straight for the barricade. The 75 were ready for them. Some of them got halfway across the bridge and then tumbled into the river. Not one got back around the corner of the road to Linville. There was another half hour of quiet. And then from the Linville road a battery of artillery got into action. Their range was bad. So far as any achievement against the 75 was concerned. So they turned their attention to the chateau. Which they could easily see from their position across the river. The first shell struck the majestic tower of the building and shattered it. The next smashed the roof. The third hit the chapel and so continued the bombardment until flames broke out to complete the destruction. Of course the Germans could not know that the chateau was empty. That its owner was in Paris and both her sons fighting in the French army. But they had secured the military advantage of demolishing one of the finest country houses in France. With its priceless tapestries, ancient marbles and heirlooms of the Bourbons. A howl of German glee was heard by the 75 chasseurs crouching behind their barricades. So pleased were the invaders with their achievement, that next they bravely swung out a battery into the road leading to the bridge, intending to shell the barricades. The captain of chasseurs again waved his hand. Every man of the battery was killed before the guns were in position. It took an entire company of infantry half of them being killed in the action to haul those guns back into the Linville Road, thus to clear the way for another advance. From then on until one o'clock in the afternoon there were three more infantry attacks, all failing as lamentably as the first. The 75 were holding off the 12.000. At the last attack they let the Germans advance to the entrance of the bridge. They invited them with chance to avance. Then they poured in their deadly fire, and as the Germans broke and fled they permitted themselves a cheer. Up to this time not one chasseur was killed, only four were wounded. Shortly after one o'clock the German artillery wasted a few more shells on the ruined chateau and the chasseurs could see a detachment crawling along the river bank in the direction of the narrow footbridge that crossed through the chateau park a half mile below. The captain of the chasseurs sent one man with a mitrailleuse to hold the bridge. He posted himself in the shelter of a large tree at one end. In a few minutes about fifty Germans appeared. They advanced cautiously on the bridge. The chasseur let them get halfway over before he raked them with his fire. The water below ran red with blood. The Germans retreated for help and made another attack an hour later with the same result. By four o'clock, when the lone chasseur's ammunition was exhausted, it is estimated that he had killed 175 Germans, who made five desperate rushes to take the position, which would have enabled them to make a flank attack on the 74 still holding the main bridge. 
when his ammunition was gone which occurred at the same time as the ammunition at the main bridge was exhausted this chasseur with the others succeeded in effecting a retreat to a main body of cavalry. If he still lives this modern Horatius at the bridge he remains an unnamed hero in the ranks of the French army, and honored except in the hearts of those few of his countrymen who know. During the late hours of the afternoon aeroplanes flew over the chasseur's position, thus discovering to the Germans how really weak were the defenses of the town. How few its defenders, besides, the ammunition was gone, but for eight hours from eight in the morning until four in the afternoon the 75 had held the 12.000. General Schaffer has said in one of his reports that the defense of the bridge at Gerbeviller had an important bearing on the Battle of the Marne, which was just beginning, for it gave Castelnau's army of the east time to dig its trenches a few miles back of Gerbeviller before the Germans got through. Had that body of 12.000 succeeded earlier the 150.000 Germans that advanced the next day might have been able to fall on the French right flank during the most critical and decisive battle of the war. The total casualties of the chasseurs were three killed, three captured, and six wounded. The little old man and I had walked to the entrance of the Chateau Park before he finished his story. It was still too early for breakfast. I thanked him and told him to return to his work in the little house by the bridge. I wanted to explore the chateau at leisure. I entered the place what was left of it. Most of the walls were standing. Walls built in the 12th century do not break easily, even with modern artillery. But the modern roof and 17th century inner walls were all demolished. Not a single article of furniture or decoration remained. But the destruction showed some of the same freaks similar to that little house left untouched by fire on the summit of the hill. For instance, the bourbon coat of arms above the grand staircase was untouched, while the staircase itself was just splintered bits of marble. On another fragment of a wall there still hung a magnificent stag's antlers. Strewed about in the corners I saw fragments of vases that had been priceless. Even the remnants were valuable. In the ruined music room I found a piece of fresh, clean music, an Alsatian waltz, lying on the mantelpiece. I went out to the front of the building where the great park sweeps down to the edge of the river. An old gardener in one of the side paths saw me. We immediately established cordial relations with a cigarette. He told me how, after the chasseurs retreated beyond the town, the Germans reduced over a thousand of their original number by the activities of the day swept over the barricades of the bridge and into the town. Yes, the old woman I had talked with was right about it. They were very angry. They were ferociously angry at being held eight hours at that bridge by a force so ridiculously small. The first civilians they met they killed, and then they began to fire the houses. One young man, half-witted, came out of one of the houses near the bridge. They hanged him in the garden behind the house. Then they called his mother to see. A mob came piling into the chateau headed by four officers. All the furniture and valuables that were not destroyed they piled into a wagon and sent back to Linville. Of the gardener who was telling me the story they demanded the keys of the wine cellars. No, they did not injure him. They just held him by the arms while several dozen of the soldiers spat in his face. While the drunken crew were reeling about the place, one of them accidentally stumbled upon the secret underground passage leading to the famous grottoes. These grottoes and the underground connection from the chateau were built in the 15th century. They are a half mile away, situated only half above ground. The entrance looking out on a smooth lawn that extends to the edge of the river. Several giant trees, the trunks of which are covered with vines, semi-shelter the entrance, which is also obscured by climbing ivy. The interior was one of the treasures of France. 
The vaulted ceilings were done in wonderful mosaic, the walls decorated with marbles and rare seashells. In every nook were marble pedestals and antique statuary, while the fountain in the center, supplied from an underground stream, was of porphyry inlaid with mosaic. The Germans looked upon it with appreciative eyes and cultured minds, but it did not please them. They were still very angry. Its destruction was a necessity of war. It could not be destroyed by artillery because it was half underground and screened by the giant trees, but it could be destroyed by picks and axes. A squad of soldiers was detailed to the job. They did it thoroughly. The gardener took me there to see. Not a scrap of the mosaic remained. The fountain was smashed to bits. A headless Venus and a smashed and battered Adonis were lying prone upon the ground. The visitors to the chateau and environs afterward joined their comrades in firing the town. Night had come. Also across the bridge wait the hundred and fifty thousand reinforcements come from Linville. The five hundred of the two thousand inhabitants who remained were herded to the upper end of the town near the station. That portion was not to be destroyed because the German general would make his headquarters there. The inhabitants were to be given a treat. They were to witness the entrance of the hundred and fifty thousand. The power and might of Germany was to be exhibited to them. So while the flames leaked high from the burning city, reddening the sky for miles, while old men prayed, while women wept, while little children whimpered, the sound of martial music was heard down the street near the bridge. The infantry packed in close formation. The red light from the fire shining on their helmets, were doing the goose step up the main street to the station the great German army had entered the city of Gerbeviller with the honors of war. General Foch, the man of Ypres on account of France's new master of war from the New York Times. April, 1915. Find out the weak point of your enemy and deliver your blow there, said the commander of the 20th French Army Corps at Nancy at a staff banquet in 1913. But suppose, General, said an artillery officer, that the enemy has no weak point, if the enemy has no weak point, returned the commander, with a gleam of the eye and an aggressive tilt of the chin, make one, the commander was Fulch Ferdinand Fulch who has suddenly flashed before the world as the greatest leader in the French army after Joffre, and who in that remark at Nancy gave the index to the basic quality of his character as a general, General Fulch is today in command of the northern armies of France. Besides being the chief lieutenant and confidant of Joffre, Joffre conceives, Fulch, master tactician, executes, he finds the weak point, if there is no weak point, he creates or seeks to create one, when King George of England was at the front in France recently he conferred the Grand Cross of the Order of the Bath the highest military distinction in the form of an order within the gift of the British crown on two Frenchmen, Joffre was one, the other was Fulch, 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 who was Fulch? asked the British public, perplexed, when the newspapers printed the news of the granting of the signal honor. Fulch is the general who was at the head of the French military mission which followed our army maneuvers three years ago, replied a few men who happened to have been intimately acquainted with those maneuvers. But what has that to do with the Grand Cross of the Order of the Bath? asked John Bull, and the maneuver experts not being able to reply. The English newspapers demanded from their correspondents in France an answer to the query was Fulch, why the Grand Cross, and the main features of the answers to that query were these, Fulch is the greatest strategist in Europe and the humblest, in the words of Joffre, Fulch is the hero of the Marne, the man who perceived on September 9th that there must be a gap between the Prussian Guard and the Saxon army, and who gathered enough artillery to crush the Guard in the St. Gon marshes and forced both the Prussians and the Saxons, now separated, to a retreat, Fulch is the man of Ypres, 
the commander who was in general control of the successful fight made by the French and the British, aided by the Belgians, to prevent the Germans from breaking through to Calais. Foch, in short, is one of the military geniuses of the war, so record observers at the front. He is a general who has something of the Napoleonic in his composition, the dramatic in war is for him secrecy and suddenness, gigantic and daring movements, fiery, yet coldly calculated attacks, vast strategic conceptions carried out by swift, and faltering tactics. Fulch has a tendency to the impetuous, but he is impetuous scientifically. He has, however, taken all in all, much more of the dash and nervousness and warmth of the southern Latin and has Shafra cool, cautious, taciturn Shafra, yet both men are from the south of France, they were born within a few miles of one another, within three months of one another, Fulch being born on October 2nd, 1851, and Shafra on January 12th, 1852, most writers who have dealt with Fulch agree on this as one of his paramount characteristics the Napoleonic mode of military thought. When Fulch was director of the École de Guerre, where he had much to do with shaping the military views of many of the men who are now commanding units of the French armies, he was considered to be possessed of almost an obsession on the subject of Napoleon. He studied Napoleon's campaigns, and restudied them. He went back much further, however, in his choice of a master, and gave intense application to the campaigns of Caesar. Napoleon and Caesar these were the minds from which the mind of the Marne and Ypres has learned some of its lessons of success. Here Fulch invites comparison with another of the dominant figures of the war General French. For French is described by his biographer as a worshipper of Napoleon, regarding him as the world's greatest strategist, and in following out and studying Napoleon's campaigns French personally covered and studied much of the ground in Belgium over which he has been fighting. French is a year younger than Fulch. They are old friends, as are French and Chauffre, and Chauffre and Fulch. The inclination of Fulch to something of the Napoleonic is shown beyond the realm of strategy and tactics. Fulch is credited with knowing the French soldier, his heart, his mind, his capabilities, and the method of getting the most out of those capabilities, in a way reminiscent of the winner of Jena. And Fulch knows not only the privates, but the officers. When he went to the front he visited each commander, the colonels he called by name, the corps commanders, without exception, had attended his lectures at the École de Guerre. As for the men, Fulch makes it his business to get into personal contact with them, as Napoleon used to do. Fulch does not hobnod with them. There is no joking or familiarity, but he goes into the trenches and the occupied villages and looks the men over informally, inspects food or equipment, makes a full comment or two, drops a phrase that is worth repeating and leaves behind him enthusiasm and respect. The Paris Figaro says that he has the gift of setting souls afire, of arousing that elan in the French fighter which made that fighter perform military miracles when the son of Austerlitz was high. It has been declared by a French writer that Fulch knows the human element in the French army better than any other man living, with all his knowledge of men, his power of inspiring them. Fulch is quiet, retiring, non-communicative with no taste for meeting people in social intercourse. His life has been monotonous work and work and work. He has the reputation of being a driver, he used to be particularly severe on shirkers in the war college, and such, no matter what their influence, had no chance of getting a diploma leading to an attractive staff position when Fulch was director. When he was in command at Nancy and elsewhere he used to work his staffs hard, and they had to share much of the monotony of work which has been chiefly Fulch's life. He did not go in for society, 
merely making the formal calls required by the etiquette of garrison towns on the chief garrison hostesses, and giving dinners two or three times a year to his staff. Fulch, indeed, with his quiet ways and his hard work and his studying of Napoleon and Caesar, was characterized by some of the officers of the army as a pedant, a theorist, and these held that Fulch had small chance of doing anything important in such a practical realm as that of real war. Because of his directorship of the École de Guerre he was known to many officers, but as far as France at large was concerned his name was scarcely known at all last August, yet officers knew him in other lands besides his own. His two great books, Principles of War and Conduct of War, have been translated into English, German, and Italian, and are highly regarded by military men. He has been ranked by the Militer Wokenblatt, organ of the German General Staff as one of the few strategists of first-class ability among the Allies. Fulch is a slim man, with a great deal of nervous energy in his actions, being so quick and graceful in movement, indeed, that a recent English observer declares he carries himself more like a man of forty than one of sixty-four. His grey-blue eyes are particularly to be noticed, so keen are they. His speech is quick, precise, logical. So little has Fulch been known to the French public that it has been stated time and again that he is an Alsatian. He is not, but comes of a Basque family which has lived for many generations in the territory which is now the department of the Oates Pyrenees, directly on the border of Spain. Fulch was born in the town of Charbes in that department. Schaffer was born in the department Pyrenees Orientals, on the Spanish border to the east. Fulch's father, Napoleon Fulch was a Bonapartist and secretary of the prefecture at Tarbes under Napoleon III. One of his two brothers, a lawyer, is also called Napoleon, the other is a Jesuit priest. Fulch and these brothers attended the local college, and then turned to their professions. In 1870 Fulch served as a subaltern against the Germans, as did Schaffer. After the war Fulch began to win recognition as